Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3. It's been a couple of weeks since we started in Corinthians, so what I'd like to do is go back and do just a little um, introduction to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. So you might want to turn to chapter 1 and uh, remind you um, in Acts chapter 18 verses 1 through 11 it tells us that Paul uh, planted the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Um, Corinth at the time, of course Athens would be today, but uh, in Paul's time, uh, it was the most important city in Greece. And um, what I'm gonna do is put a picture of Corinth Uh, Of course, we have really no way of knowing, but the first picture is a picture of Corinth. Uh, Today, it only has ruins, but that's um, some sort of a picture of what it possibly could have looked like. Uh, Paul wrote two letters um, to the Corinthians. Corinth was probably the leading city in the world when it came to commerce. And the reason for that is, uh, I'll put this second one on, and it shows a picture of a canal. And you can see where Corinth is located. The land sort of comes together to such a point that they had two ports, one on the south and one on the north. And um, they would actually, if the boat, boat was small enough, they would actually drag boats from the south to the north and and vice versa. They actually tried to, um, the Romans actually tried to make a canal um, but failed. But then in the 1800s they succeeded in building this canal. So when we visited Corinth we actually went over this bridge and so The reason for the wealth of Corinth is because of these two ports. You'd have one in the south. It was very, very dangerous to go around it. And um, so this was completed in the um, mid-1800s. And it's it's used to this day. All right. Um, Paul was there for roughly a year and a half, or about 18 months, from 51 to 52 AD, uh, the, the church um, came out of a very pagan system, very idolatrous religion, which I'll talk about in just a bit. Uh, it was a key city in the world until Rome destroyed it in 146 BC. Uh, it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 46 BC. In Paul's day, the population was 700,000 people, and two-thirds of that 700,000 were slaves. So it was a a very large city. Uh, The most famous temple was to Aphrodite. Uh, She would have been the goddess of love, and I'm going to put a picture on the screen. You'll see the ruins 
of, that's what it looks like today if you would visit Corinth. But I want to draw your attention to the big hill in the background because that is where the temple to Aphrodite would have been. She would have been the goddess of love. And the way they practiced their religion is they had um, 1,000 consecrated (laughs) prostitutes. And every week they would come down and worship Aphrodite just the way that you can imagine. I mean, I think when I did this last time, I, I said that's the ultimate oxymoron, consecrated prostitute. But that's what they would do. 1,000 of them would come down from the temple into Corinth and it affected the whole culture and it really messed up the church as we're gonna see. Of all of the letters that Paul writes to the churches, by far (laughs) and large, Corinth was um, um, the worst of all of them. So Paul wrote the book of Romans from Corinth Um, It was sort of the Las Vegas of its day when people would want to travel and party hardy and just let loose. Well, a lot of people go to Vegas and that's what they do. So that's what Corinth was known for. So much so, it was so famous for the evil that the term Corinthianism, if I can say that right, was coined and it's a, a word that literally means becoming like a Corinthian or living like a Corinthian uh, because of the debauchery and all, all the prostitution uh, that went on there. So with that little bit of a, a background, was there one more that I wanted to show? Let's see, two. Nope, that's pretty much it. Let's go to chapter two. Both two and three are very short chapters, so we're not going to have too much problem time getting through them. I was tempted to dive into four, but I thought now we'll take our time and do a little, some sidetracking here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look at the first five verses. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. Not just trembling, but much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not lie in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, to be honest with you, this sort of amazes me. As Paul describes himself when he went to Corinth, he said he went there with much fear and trembling. And for the life of me, I just can't imagine Um, that coming across as being the Apostle Paul. What does remind me of is Moses. When Moses was first called, and he was standing before the burning bush, and um, he's praying uh, 
the Lord tells him he's gonna send him to be the deliverer of the people that are in bondage in Egypt. And Moses' reply is don't send me, I can't speak. Send, send Aaron, he's a much better orator than I am, but you don't wanna send me. But he said, no, I'm sending you, and just know this, that I will be with you. And um, we had a study a couple of weeks ago, we actually called it um, not, not Many Mighty. And God, for some reason, chooses the foolish things of the world to purposely confound the wise. And I think as an example, we went to um, a book of Acts where Peter and John had just had this guy healed and everybody knew that a miracle had taken place. And as they were looking at Peter and John, they couldn't figure it out because it said about them that they were uneducated and untrained, but then it said, but they noticed that he was with, these two men were with Jesus. And that's what makes all the difference. These guys were just fishermen. I mean, just average Joes from Capernaum and uh, the northern part of of, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And the Lord called them out. And um, so we see this, even though when Paul gives his credentials, uh, he talks about who he sat under, Gamaliel. Uh, he was by far the most famous of the um, teachers that would have been teachers to the Pharisees. So these, this first couple of verses here, one through five, um, sort of set me back a little bit when um, Paul said, when I came to you, I was in fear. I was scared and much trembling. But again, God chooses the foolish things of the world, again, to confound the wise. All right, verses six through eight. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who have come to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory. So in other words, the Lord uh, tells us that Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the earth was laid. The Lord knew that that was going to happen. Before there was even a world, he was crucified before the foundations of the earth. That's what we're told. And now we read in verse eight, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now let that sink in. What Paul is is saying here, if they had any idea when they killed Jesus, they were saying, we won. We accomplished it. No more Jesus. We killed him on the cross. And here in verse eight, Paul was saying, if they would have known what was really going on when Jesus died on the cross, they would have never let it happen. They didn't know that this was preordained before the foundations of the world. And as far as they were concerned, when they jabbed that spear into his side and blood came out, he was dead. And he was dead. 
What they didn't know, that the sins of the world were placed upon him, and three days later, he's victorious. So to, to sort of drive this point home, in reality, Jesus won when he said, it's finished, which actually paid in full is the, the right um, reading in the Greek there. Paid in full, accomplished, to tell us I. Turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter five. So the real victors was the Lord and you and I. In chapter five, verses one through seven, I'm just gonna read it and then comment on it. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this would be the father, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open a scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or interesting or under the earth was able to open a scroll or even to look at it. And so I wept much. Now why would John start weeping at this point? Because what he's holding in his hands is really the title deed to planet Earth. And nobody can look at it and nobody can touch it. And this is sinking into John and John begins to weep because the thought of the God of this world and he's still the God of this world right now until the Lord sets up his kingdom. So the God of this world right now is Lucifer. That's why all this crazy stuff is going on right now. This is the real thing that's going on behind the scenes. It's a spiritual warfare that is getting ready to set up the Antichrist. And it's overwhelming for John. He can't handle the thought that what was forfeited in the garden. Now let's go back to the Garden of Eden before I finish reading the rest of this here. Adam and Eve sinned. They were the ones who named the animals. It was given to them. It was theirs. But it was forfeited because of their sin. And this is where Lucifer became the god of this world. You have the first murder taking place between Cain and Abel. And um, so going back here, John can't handle the thought of, of Satan being the god of this world and, and nobody can take the scroll out of the father's hands. Let's continue to read. Uh, the angel said, uh, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose it and seal it. Well, here's my question. Where and how did he prevail? Answer, on Calvary's cross. Uh, his enemies, if they would have known that they really lost everything at this point, they would have never let it happen. That's what Paul's telling us in um, the second chapter of Corinthians, verse, verse eight there. But he has prevailed, but he hasn't laid claim to its ownership until right here. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all of the earth. 
And then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He says, I'll take that. I paid for it 2,000 years ago. And now I'm coming to claim what I purchased back then. Let's go back to um, 1 Corinthians 2 and reread this verse again, verse 8, which said, um, which none of the rulers of this age, for had they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If, this, if they would have understood that this was, um, as Jesus said in the beginning, um, when his disciples tried to talk him out of going to Jerusalem, and he says, no, for this reason I came into the world. I came into the world to die on a cross. And it was hard for them to wrap their head around that. They were jockeying for position. They were sure he was the Messiah, no doubt about that. Um, he could walk on water. He could make blind men see. He could make lame man walk. Um, you're the Messiah. We're on our way to Jerusalem, obviously to set up the kingdom. They didn't see God's overall plan for the church age. So there's been 2,000 years where he set Israel aside, that's uh, Romans 9, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And as I look at my clock, it's one minute to 12, okay? That's how late it is right now. And everything that's happening is happening so quick that the Lord really could come, seriously, at any time. We could be out of here. That's how late it is. So there was a period of time where Israel was set aside, and then when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that means there's a set number of people who are going to be saved. And when that person, that last person, when that number is full, then we are out of here. And you know me, and you know what I'm going to say next. If you're that person and you're holding everything up, get your act together. I want to go home. Period. What? No amen here? <laughs> Nobody wants to go home besides me? They didn't know. So verses 6 through 8. Um, Jesus purchased it back on Calvary's cross. <clears throat> uh, but only here in Revelation 5 does he accept what he won on Calvary. But there still has to be this period of judgment for those who have rejected the gospel. And that's what the tribulation period is really going to be all about. All right, let's go to verse nine, just one verse here. But as it is written, okay, again, here we have a prophecy from the Old Testament that Paul quotes here. He says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, there's no way in your wildest dreams you could ever imagine what heaven and the millennium is going to be like. Uh, We have hints here and there. I'm gonna have you turn back to the book of Isaiah where this is actually quoted from, chapter 64. And let's look at the first four verses. Isaiah 64, excuse me. Boy, this this is uh, appropriate for right now. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. Here's a good place for an amen. (laughs) 
Oh, that you would come, Lord, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence when you did awesome things for which we did not look. You came down, the mountains shook at your presence. From since the beginning of the world, men, and this, this is where it gets a quote from, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. So here, Paul is lifting this scripture from Isaiah 64, but I want to add one thing to it in Isaiah 65 and take you to verse 17, which tells us, as screwed up as the world is right now, we can come to a Wednesday night Bible study and get the whole picture. Um, things are, you know, completely out of control in Australia, and um, they're almost as bad in France. And with uh, what I'm hearing just today, some of the th- things that they're going to try to implement that um, we could easily see a civil war in the United States of America because of some of the things that they're going to try to mandate. And that'll be unfolding. Um, If we make it to the prophecy conference, it'll be a very interesting prophecy conference because a lot's going to be um, tried to be pushed through between right now today and um and and by the end by the end of the year but the good news is that before we enter look at verse 17 behold i create a new heavens and a new earth and it goes on to say at another place revelation 21 1 for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away so it's all going to be new eventually So he says, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. So with all the stuff that we gotta put up with today, uh, one thing that cannot take away from us, actually there's three things that can't take away from us. Faith, what's the second one? Hope and love. Because we have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of seeing things that we can't possibly even imagine. And... um, Before the Lord creates the new heavens and the earth, he will set up for a thousand years his millennial kingdom. And we'll get to that in verse 20. For behold, I create Jerusalem as rejoicing and her people joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall be no longer heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Okay, everything I read 17, 18, and 19 deals with the new heavens and the new earth. And now I'm gonna regress. Verse 20 um, goes to uh, the millennial period of time. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man has not fulfilled his days. 
for the child shall die being 100 years old, people will be saying, oh, what a pity. This is why I know this is not heaven because there is no, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no more death. So this period of time that I'm reading right now has to be the millennium. But longevity of life is gonna be restored just like it was um, during, Adam lived to be, what, 936 years old or something like that. And um, they're gonna say, oh, what a pity. Uh, He's just a baby, he's 100 years old. And the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So we know this isn't heaven because no sinners are allowed into heaven. So again, we're talking about free will during this kingdom age. Uh, They shall build houses and inhabit them. Uh, They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. Uh, For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer them. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. And it says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Well, these are natural adversaries. Uh, wolf eat lambs. And, um, but now, um, they eat straw. In the next verse, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this one verse, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So this, this one verse um, that gives us the complete picture that we are strangers and pilgrims just passing through. I got a sweatshirt that says, just passing through, not here long. And um, let's pick it up now in verses 10 through 14. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. So we have sort of a taste of heaven because of God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him, even so no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but with the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But 
the natural man, when it says the natural man, we're talking about a person who's not born again. The natural man does not perceive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I'll give you an example of this. Turn John, the Gospel of John, chapter three. And probably the best example of a natural man, even though he's a religious man, is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was rich, he was religious, and he's a natural man, and it's bothering him. So we read in verse one, we'll read one through 12 here. There was a man of the Pharisees whose name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that's come from God for nobody can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now this was troubling Nicodemus because obviously he wants what Jesus has. But he's not coming out and saying it. He's coming at night. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to see him. Hanging out and talking to Jesus. And I like what the Lord does here. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. So he calls Nicodemus out. And he tells him exactly why he's here and exactly what he needs. Basically, Nicodemus, the Lord knows, whatever you got, I want. And Jesus answered and said unto him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's what we just read in Corinthians. The natural man will never get it. You can't study to figure it out. You can't go to some uh, Christian university. Most of them today, most of the professors aren't even born again. Um, And that's a tragedy within itself. But here, the Lord cuts right to the point and Nicodemus is called out. He says, okay, you know why I'm here. He says, well, then how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, this is, this is a thinking of somebody who's not born again, and he's looking at the Lord doing all these things, knowing there's something special about Jesus. So the Lord said, Nicodemus, most surely I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, when you're born of water, everybody's heard the expression, oh, her water broke. What does that mean? Baby's coming soon. So you have to be, in order to be born again, it's basically saying you have to be born as a human being. Human beings are the only one that can be born again. Cats and dogs, that might break your heart, but they can't be born again. (laughs) Your dog and your cat think about one thing, oh, two, eating and sleeping, and pet me as often as you can. Well, if you've got a cat, that's the way it is, or a dog. But uh, basically, he's saying you have to have these two factors to go to heaven, Nicodemus. First of all, you've got to be, but then you've got to be born again. Not like you were born the first time when your water broke, but now you need to be born by the Spirit of God. 
And then he says, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Why did he say that? Because Nicodemus is scratching his head trying to figure this thing out. What in the world are you talking about? What does it say in Corinthians? The natural man does not understand, neither can he, until he's born again. So he uses this analogy. The wind blows where it wishes, and you can hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell from where it comes or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He still is not gonna get this. But that's exactly the way it is when the Spirit of God is working in a person's heart. You can't see the Holy Spirit. Just in the same way you can't see the wind as it blows through a tree and makes the leaves move. You only see the result of what the wind does to the tree. And that's what the Lord is saying here. Uh, You can't see the Spirit of God, but it's working. It has an effect on people's lives. Most assuredly, I say to you, oh, and then Jesus said to him, Nicodemus answered and said to him, well, how can these things be? And the Lord um, sort of chides him here. He says, Nicodemus, aren't you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? The people are looking to you for spiritual answers and you can't give them because you don't have them. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you of earthly things and you do not believe, he says, Nicodemus, how are you going to believe if I tell you of heavenly things? I'm going to leave it uh, there and have you turn back to... um, 1 Corinthians 2, and go back to verse 14. Again, the main point as we finish up these verses here is um, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. That's why when you're witnessing to people, uh, all of a sudden, maybe you're aware that there's the Holy Spirit becomes a part of the conversation. And you don't realize it, but you're sowing seeds. You're just witnessing to them. You're telling them about, well, let me tell, tell you a story about Nicodemus. He was religious, nice guy, wanted to know truth, but he wasn't going to heaven. And uh, that person will never understand, just like Jesus said to Nicodemus, you're not gonna get it, Nick, until you're born again. You must be born again. So why did Jesus say you must be born again? Because you must be born again. (laughs) And the natural man will never figure that out until the word that you sow in people's hearts, the Bible says it will not return void. What does that mean? It means that after you're off the scene, we'll talk a little bit later with Paul and Apollos. Uh, Paul said, I planted seeds, but it was Apollos who came along and watered them. So you leave, and then the Holy Spirit begins to work. And the words that you witness to that person about, they have to go home and put their head on a pillow. And guess what's playing over and over in their head all night? The word will not return void. And then the next day they go to work, and the guy they're standing next to it says, can't believe it happened to me this weekend. I gave my life to Jesus, and everything looks so different. I just can't 
believe the, the change. And now this is Apollos watering. And you're beginning to think, this probably isn't a coincidence. And maybe I better be more open to what these people are saying. And somebody finally tells them, you know, the Bible says if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The Philippian jailer. That's how easy it is. His whole family got saved. Why? Because he believed on the word of the Lord and he got saved. All right, let's finish up this chapter. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself rightly judges is judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. At this point, I'd like you to turn with me to um, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, draw your attention to the first four verses. It says, judge not, and you won't be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you measure it, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck out of your eye, and look, you have a two-by-four in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the two-by-four from your eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, why did we come here? Because if you go back to... 1 Corinthians 2, the very last thing it says, but we who are spiritual judge all things. Now we need to make a clarification and a distinction between Matthew 7, where it says, don't judge. Uh, And what that has in view there is don't judge the motive of what a brother or sister is doing because you can't see into their heart. But here it clearly says if you're born again and spiritual that you actually judge all things. Well, the difference is this. Uh, We're gonna be talking about the judgment seat of Christ in just a little bit in our chapter tonight. Hopefully we'll get to it. But I hear the Pope is retiring in December. Have you guys heard that? Yeah, that's the, that's the word that's out there, that he's going to retire in December. I think he knows all too well what's going on, and I don't think he really, I think he's sought this thing through enough where um, he, he wants out of this whole thing. And um, I, I use the Pope as an example because I have to judge doctrine. And you have to know what a denomination or um, whether it be Protestant or Roman Catholic or Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses, you have to know what they believe and you have to make a judgment. Um, Hmm, you mean Jesus and Lucifer aren't brothers? (laughs) That's what's taught in in some of these... uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism, they actually believe that. 
And so you, you have to come to a conclusion, that's false doctrine. And somebody's gonna say, oh, you're judging me. And then you have to say, yeah, the Bible tells me right here that I have to judge all things. I have to make a discerning decision. That's off the wall. That's not biblical, therefore it needs to be rejected. Good place for an amen. So we judge things through the lens and the context of this book. And I say this all the time, if uh, you have a belief system or you believe something and you find that it's in conflict with this book, you're wrong, the Bible is right, every time. And it'll not return void. But this chapter ends, um, and I don't want you to confuse it with Matthew chapter seven, where it says, judge not and you won't be judged. That's what the Lord's gonna do at the judgment seat of Christ, which brings us to chapter three. So, in chapter three, let's read the first eight verses. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal and as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you've not been able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you're still carnal. For where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men, in other words, people who aren't saved? For one says, well, I'm of Paul, and another says, well, I'm of Apollos, and still, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But simply men or ministers to whom you believed and the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave the increase. God is the one who does the saving. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. All right, go back to chapter uh, one. And look at at verses 10 through 13. The whole point of writing this first chapter is there was division in the church of Corinth. And then we pick it up in verse 10 of chapter one. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that when when you all speak the same things and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Cleos' household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each one of you says, well, I, I'm a follower of Paul. Well, I, I'm a follower of Apollos. Or I'm a... Cephas, this is Peter. And still others would say, I'm of Christ. Paul says here, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And uh, so he addresses this, go back to chapter three here. And we made our way down to... um, Basically, Paul is talking about their labor, declaring that they're really simply instruments that the Lord is using. 
But then the subject changes and it says, don't get the wrong idea. They're still going to be rewarded. But the Lord says, I'm going to be the one that awards Paul. I'm going to be the one that gives um, rewards to Apollos and to Peter. At this time, I'd like you to go to um, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. We have the same thing of carnality and immaturity in people who have been believers for quite a while. And Paul gets on them because they had been maybe walking with the Lord for 20 or 30 years, but they're still carnal. And we read in verse one, he's talking to the Hebrews, and he says, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, or the ABCs. Well, when you first become a Christian, what are the ABCs? Well, we're told right here, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. In other words, you don't go bar hopping anymore like you did when you were unsaved. That simply goes right away. Uh, you're swearing. That's usually the first thing that goes and uh, because you get convicted. And so you turn from that. So that's number one. There's your A and the ABCs. Turn away from dead works. And then you, you turn towards the Lord by faith. That's how we get saved. You hear the gospel. You believe it by faith. Step one, um, turn from. Step two, turn towards. And then of the doctrine of baptism. Well, this goes back to the Great Commission. When the Lord sent them into the world and said, I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then I want you to teach them. All that I've taught you guys the last three years, I want you to teach that to them. So the doctrine of baptism, if you're taking notes, just write down Romans chapter six, verses one through six, and it explains the analogy. When you're a baby Christian, and by the way, if you haven't been baptized and you're born again, yes, you need to be baptized. And I always say, why do you need to be baptized? The answer is, because Jesus said so. It's really that simple. And so we have the doctrine of of baptism is explained in Romans 6, verses 1 through 6, and of laying on of hands. Well, here's a second baptism. Um, Philip was preaching in Samaria. A lot of people were getting saved. The town sorcerer got saved, got baptized, but they didn't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Philip sends a message down to Jerusalem, and he called for Peter and John to come up, And they come up, they lay their hands on these people that are already saved and baptized. And let me just stop and say today, there are a lot of Baptists that are saved and baptized. That's why they're called Baptists, (laughs) because they're into baptism. But they're unaware and not open to the laying out of hands, which is clearly part of the ABCs. And so Peter and John come up from Jerusalem, they lay their hands on them, and it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That order, by the way, can be reversed, as in the case with the first Gentile getting saved, Cornelius. And he wanted to know how to get saved. And they said, well, you know, um, call for Peter and have him come over and explain the gospel to you. And so he does. And right in the middle of his Bible study, the Holy Spirit falls on them after Peter said, 
that it's all about Jesus dying for your sins. Ta-da, the lights go on, they get it. I'm a sinner. I need to accept Jesus as my savior and that's what was going on in their hearts. They didn't say the sinner's prayer. They didn't walk up front, they didn't raise their hand, they didn't do any of that. But God saw their heart and as a result, the Holy Spirit came down and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, can anybody deny them water and say they can't now experience water baptism? I tell you that because you can't put the Lord in a box. He can fill you with the Holy Spirit and you can get baptized or you can get baptized and then get filled with the Holy Spirit. Or in my case, that happened all this at the same time. I was baptized in water, came out of the water, speaking in tongues some 50 years ago. And uh, for me personally, it was, uh, they both happened simultaneously at the same time. All right. Um, then, laying on of hands, and then the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There will be a resurrection. For us, it will hopefully be the rapture. And then we have two judgments. The judgment seat of Christ is where we're going next. But then in Revelation 20, uh, the great white throne judgment. And this judgment is only for those who never accepted Christ. And they... um, they will be judged by the by it says by their works. Okay, let's go back to First Corinthians three. We left off in verse eight. Um, verse nine: For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building. And according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a minister, master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. In other words, as you're sharing Christ with people, make sure you take them through the ABCs. Uh, make sure you warn them about false doctrines, false teachers. Be careful how you build. Um, And then it says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on his foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. We have to stop right here, and I need to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just for two verses. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, uh, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to Christians. That each one may receive the things that he's done in his body. Now this is pertaining to um, the gifts that the Lord has given to you and how you're using them. And according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. Well, Dwight, I thought if all of our sins are washed away and we we are for the judgment seat of Christ, and the Bible says, I'll never you'll never be brought to shame. He says, I've taken your sins and I've separated them as far as the east is from the west. Well then what's he talking about here? I'm gonna judge you whether it was good or whether it was bad. This is one of the places where you can't take scripture out of 
out of uh, not only context, but you gotta see what else does the scripture say about my sins and when I appear before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, here we're told that we're, we're going to do it. We're told to be careful how we do it. Um, and he says in verse 11, no other foundation can anyone lay that, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it. Well, what day will it be declared? At the judgment seat of Christ. Let's go back to Matthew 7. Judge not, you won't be judged. Why? Because I can't look into your heart. I can't look at Jerry down there and knows know why he does what he does. What's your motive? Why are you doing that? I don't know. Who does? Well, Jesus knew what was going on in Nicodemus's heart, didn't he? He knew exactly what was going on. Jesus is the only one that can determine why we do what we do for the kingdom. And that's what's being said right here. Each one's work will be judged. At the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord will judge your motive, why you serve the Lord. Later on, we're gonna read Paul saying, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. And we're gonna talk about ending the Bible study being a fool. And basically that means I don't care what you think, I don't care what anybody thinks, I just think what God thinks. And that should be my motive. And um, the day will declare it. Well, the gold, silver, and precious stones are something that will not be destroyed by fire. Those are things that you did with the right motive, with the right intent. And Paul is saying just earlier, we're gonna, we're gonna receive our, according to our labor, verse eight, each one will receive his own reward. And now we're, we're talking about it here. So the gold, silver, and precious stones are what remain. Good motive, you're gonna receive some sort of reward. What is it? Don't have a clue. But then there's wood, hay, and straw. Well, you put a match to any one of those things and they're not around for very long. So what does that mean? Well, your motive wasn't right in doing your service for the Lord. That's why it says when you do a good work, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing because your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Two questions. Where will he reward you openly? Right here. Right here. The day will declare it. Um, but if you do your good works before men, he says, well, you got your reward. And you did it so that people um, would pat you on the back or whatever. Now, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And what I always think of here are the two extremes. I believe the Apostle Paul has a whole lot of treasure in heaven. Wouldn't you agree with that? And I think the thief on the cross has absolutely no treasure in heaven. He died a thief. <laughs> but did he go to heaven? Yeah, he's in heaven right now. The Lord says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And um, 
That was Abraham's bosom, and that's a whole Bible study within itself. But my point is simply this. There, everybody's joy is going to be full in heaven, except that Paul's rewards are gigantic, <laughs> and a thief on the cross, hey, I'm just glad I'm here. I, he has absolutely no rewards, but his joy is full, and there's fullness of joy, and uh, that is what the thief on the cross will in, inherit. Then it says, and we'll close up with these last verses here, 16 to 23. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And there is again a quote from Job. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they're futile. Therefore, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or anything present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ in God. We'll close by looking at worldly wisdom. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 13. The world. Verse chapter 2. I'm sorry. Chapter 2 verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. And here's how practical this is. You can invest in all these things, or you can seek first the kingdom of heaven, and then the last verse 17, here's the rationale that we'll close with tonight. The world is passing away, and the lusts of it. So the question is, why invest in it? The answer is, have a healthy balance. You gotta work, right? You gotta pay the bills. You gotta go grocery shopping. You gotta have a car to get there. But it's talking about that being your whole identity. You should identify, you should identify yourself, let's say you're a carpenter. Well, no, you're not. You're a Christian. You just happen to be a carpenter. Everybody with me? So no matter what your profession is, your first profession is that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and this is what I do for a living. And the world is passing away and the lusts of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And there's coming a time. um, All the evil people that are in the world today that are causing atrocities around the world let me close by saying, nobody's going to get away with anything. And people are wondering, why doesn't the Lord do something? Oh, he's got his game plan all laid out. The fullness of the Gentiles, praise the Lord, is almost here. And I believe the next day there's going to be two guys that show up that start the seven-year tribulation period, Moses and Elijah. And they go about preaching the gospel. 
and a whole lot of people are going to get saved during that seven-year period of time. But the good news is that this is as bad as it's ever going to be. And um, when the Lord said, I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you are going to be also. You're not, the Bible study closed with saying that you're, um, and you are Christ and Christ is God. That's true, but it's more personal than that, and I'll leave you with this thought. You are Christ in the sense that you are the bride of Christ. And it's one thing to be a saved, born again, a Christian, but there's this whole nether dimension that goes a whole lot deeper when you're called the bride of Christ. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close with prayer. Lord, thank you for your word as we make our way through uh, chapter two and three of Corinthians. And um, we're grateful, Lord, that you've chosen the foolish things in the world. The old song says, everybody's somebody's fool. Paul's saying that he's a fool for you. Lord, help us never be afraid of what people might think of us because we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. Let them think what they want to. Let them call us fools. And let it be water just going right off our back because Paul said um, the things of the world are foolishness to those that are not saved. So Lord, uh, we thank you for your word tonight and dismiss us and bless us in fellowship as we go out. In Jesus' name, amen.